Hello everybody. Scotland has long been proud of its reputation as a warm, welcoming, hospitable nation. And my guest in this episode is a legend of the Scottish hospitality industry. He's the owner of The Gate in Glasgow and his passion for breaking down the barriers of entry into Scotch whisky have led him to establish Whisky Wonderland. Please welcome Andy Gemmell. Andy, how are you, sir? Hi, Scott. Really good. That was a lovely video. I like that. I was getting all caught up in it with my jam. <laughs> I know. It's part of the big uh, video that we have at the visitor centre. It's quite a nice anthemic sort of video, but um, it was a very, very easy way of making this look a little bit more professional when we were trying to figure out how the internet works at Tomatin a few months ago. So, um, it's funny, I was on a, a hangout, like a live stream like this with the guys over at Aaron Distillery and Andy mentioned that the first couple of minutes of the show are very much where we pretend that we've not been speaking to each other for five minutes before we've gone live. But how are you? How's things? How's lockdown been? Yeah, it's been, it's been okay. Um, I've got to admit that I struggled for... The, I, I, um, I keep myself very busy. I'm a very kind of active person as in my brain like I need to do it so if I'm being brutally honest I, I really struggled for that first little bit um, I attempted gardening uh, I'm not very good at man stuff so I attempted gardening failed at that I started to, just to try and keep my brain busy um, so I failed at most of the things I did with that and then we kind of started up a delivery service out the gate which went it's went really well um, but yeah I, I think it's just been keeping my brain busy, but at the same time, you know, things that we're going to talk about, like Whiskey Wonderland, kind of kept me occupied. It's gave my brain um, probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, like a lot of people, to actually reassess things and think about the future, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's. I mean, I think at various levels, we're all kind of taking a wee step back and assessing if the way we do things are the right way and how we can change going forward and make them out of a, a bad situation. But... Most important question of the night, what's in your glass right now? Oh, it doesn't need to be tomato. No. Doesn't need to be tomato, not to be anything. I've got a highlight, but if I did have it, because we've got it at the bar, I love your um, the port finish, the 14-year-old, but I've got in yeah. my cupboard, I just grabbed Highland Park. Highland Park's one of my go-tos, so I've got a wee Highland Park yeah. now. It seems to be a classic um, pub whiskey in Scotland, you know. Most most places you go around the world maybe don't have Highland Park on the bar, but it seems to be almost across Scotland you can see it anywhere. Yeah, no, it is. It's a, I mean, I used to work for Edgerton for a long time, so I've always had a bit of a soft spot for it, you know, that compared to the big kind of Rolls-Royce machine that's McAllen, you know, I always really had a soft spot for um uh, for Highland Park, and it is one of those. I mean, I know they say it, but you know, the wee bit of smoke, sweet. It's it's just one of those whiskies, especially the pub where where you're working at the pub. You can kind of bring people on to maybe after they've been drinking a certain style of whisky for so long and not blow their face off. You know, it's just a good solid dram. Aye, yeah, it's an all rounder, really. Uh, pro a proper single malt of single malts. But now, normally when I've been starting these, I think we're on to our fourteenth one of these sessions now. And I normally ask people how they got into the whiskey industry, what their, their journey through whiskey has been. But when I was reading your bio beforehand, 
it is extensive. We could talk about your career for the whole duration of the show. It is remarkable. You've pretty much, you're, if, 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 if the Scotch whiskey or the hospitality industry in Scotland had a Hall of Fame, you'd be a future Hall of Famer there. So I'm not <laughs> going to ask you how you kind of got into whiskey. What I'm going to ask is why you love whiskey. Right, okay. Why well, I love whiskey. Um, thank you very much. And by the way, I love this. This is a great thing you're doing as well, just so we can nice. But this is where we're being nice to each other. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Why I love whiskey. It took me a wee while to love whiskey, and I'll, I'll go into that in a bit more detail. But why I love it, and it's a strange one because it's what you were saying earlier on. It's it's that mystique, and I know it's something we have to address. But that's what got me into it. It's why I love it, and it's. And I've travelled, you know, I was quite lucky to work across categories over the years, cognac, all, all these other categories that are seen as aspirational, if you like, if that's the right choice of word. But for me, we've just got it. And I know I'm Scottish, but it was one of them things that was just a light bulb moment that, you know, I just love it. And then, but as I say, it did take me a wee bit of a while. I was in my kind of mid to late 20s before I properly got into Scotch, if I'm honest. And was there a particular whiskey that kind of had that light bulb effect for you? Or was it just a general build-up of various experiences? Well, no, because I, I kind of started as a, um, like, I was, believe it or not, I was a footballer. Like I played football, and then my career finished when I was quite young and ended up working in my uncle's pubs down in Greenock. And this is back in the mid-'90s, and um, it was all blends. That's how I kind of, and, and it was all the old guys coming in, they have half and half, and yep. kind of getting to that way. And it was just, Never on anyone's radar below the age of 60 years old, you know, we, we maybe had two bottles of single malt. Again, mid-90s, single malt wasn't really, you know, there yet with that. And and through the years, I kind of then went to work in a couple of bigger kind of groups, TJ Fridays and stuff. I was one of those flare monkeys in Scots. Still, you know, especially single malt, still wasn't the thing. But while I was doing that, you know, the Tom Cruise flare cocktail stuff, yeah, while yeah. I was doing all yeah. that, I, uh, I got an amazing opportunity to tr stay in the Middle East, uh, so not the Middle East, the Far East, for about, I think it was about six months, eight months. I don't know, it was a bit of a blur. But I basically went to places like Taiwan, um, Hong Kong. I went to South Korea, and I used to just do shows doing this because this was really popular. Um, and there was a moment when I went to Tokyo. So I'd never been to Tokyo. I'd never been out of bloody Scotland before, and I found myself in Tokyo. And then... Um, I was in this bar, and if you've been to Tokyo, it's all tiny little bars and very professional kind of bartenders. You know, this guy was called Mr. Oshi, and he was like a legend. And I'd never seen, I was a professional bartender, but I'd never seen bartenders in this light before. And I had a, a translator with me and everything else, and Mr. Oshi said he always got to drink whiskey, and I was like, oh, for God's sake, you know, like <laughs> I just, I'm, you know, because I'm Scottish, you know, you've got to drink whiskey. And I think I must have been about 26 or something at the time. And Mr. Oshi, brought out a, a, a solid block of ice from the bar and he chipped away a big chunk out of it and he started, um, you know, chipping away at it and he was moulding it and moulding it and he created this kind of perfect cricket ball size sphere of ice and then he put it in a clamp on the bar and then he drilled a hole through the middle of it and he picked up a bottle of Macallan, just to go back to that because it was in Asia and the, the, he picked up this bottle of Macallan and he poured the whiskey through a funnel through the the sphere of ice and it all come up the side and it was just it was the combination of this precise professional bartender and the fact about the whiskey it was just like a really bizarre moment it was like and I, and I sat and had that whiskey over ice and I just thought god why do I know nothing about whiskey 
and then as soon as I got home, I then made it my kind of um, because I'm quite an obsessive person. I then made it my kind of obsession to learn as much as I could about single malt. Yeah. Do you know it's actually quite interesting that over the last few of these sessions, when I've been asking people how they got into whiskey, there's been a remarkable amount of people who, for a living or whatnot, did travel and they came into Scotch whiskey by virtue of the fact that they knew that at some point they're going to have to talk about it and things like that. So that's that's you're by no means a, an outlier on that. That's quite an interesting thing that so many people get into whiskey, almost in terms of having to represent Scotland. Um, uh, and I think it's it seems a lot of places. I think if you go anywhere that has a national spirit, especially for the younger generation, it's just too close to home. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's not say it's not attractive, and that could be Kishasa, it could be you know any sort of national spirit, um, and it just maybe takes sometimes a wee bit of age, and and to realise you've got this right in your doorstep, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's the case with. All of these things in Scotland, you know, you think of some of the incredible scenery that we've got on our door. But when was the last time, like, I'm half an hour away from uh, maybe 45 minutes from Loch Ness. And I can't tell you the last time I went to Ocker Castle. Whereas there's people that spend their life savings traveling to see that. And it is just, a, I think it is very much a case of not appreciating what's on your doorstep because it's too easy to have access to. And that applies to drinks as well, right? Oh no, without a doubt, it's it's just it's always been it's always been the same. I think so I think and that's the thing. I think we give ourselves a hard time as as a, as a nation um, and as a kind of nationality. We're very hard on ourselves, and I think a lot of we we're starting to get that pride back into it again and really understand what we're all about. Because same as yourself, we've been very lucky. You know, we've travelled the world, and people freaking love Scotland, right? Like you don't actually comprehend until you travel to the Caribbean and you travel to these places that you think, oh, they've probably never heard of Scotland and they're obsessed. I mean, Argentina, yeah. I don't know if you're lucky enough to have with Argentina, but holy smoke, man, they're like, they've got Scottish schools, like they've got like this real affiliation with Scotland and um, they're just fascinated by the whole thing, you know? That's insane. No, I've not been to Argentina yet. Hopefully I'll get there at some point, but it is, it's something that you come across all the time and... Um, I'll I'll never forget the first festival that I did, and I think it was actually in Canada. And there's a pipe band walking through this whiskey festival. People love Scotland more than we love Scotland, which is quite quite a weird situation to be in. You're you're sitting there listening to these pipes, thinking, "Oh, I pipes again, great!" And everyone else is so amped up about it. It's it's quite funny. I think. And that, that's the thing that we're going to talk about, I think, with kind of modern Scotland. And there's nothing wrong with doing both. You know that, like, I think this is the thing. I think if we take some of that heart that people love about Scotland and try and rip it apart and go, oh, no, no, we're not about that anymore. We're about this. It just doesn't work. You know, we just need to think of a different angle to communicate, you know, modern Scotland as well as that traditional, because that's what people love about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is a tale of two halves. There's so much going on right now. And part of what's going on right now, especially in, in drinks in Scotland, is what you are doing down at the gate. And I, I, I'm, I would say the main reason I wanted to speak to you was because of all the stuff that I've seen from Whiskey Wonderland over the last few months. But we can't really talk about Whiskey Wonderland without talking about the gate and the incredible bar that you've got there. And in a part of the city that's not traditionally known for uh, high quality drinks. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. Um, 
I kind of like I used to have a bar years ago, so my family had pubs and stuff. And then when I came back from Asia that I was talking about earlier, I ended up in Edinburgh in a, the tonic bar in Edinburgh, which is still there to this day, the cocktail bar, and it was very much um and really enjoyed my time there. And then like it is now, like if you're good at your job in the bars, you kind of get snapped up from the brands and I get snapped up uh, from Edgerton or Maxim it was the, the distribution and marketing company for Edgerton and Beam and stuff. So I worked for them for years and, and I just always had the hankering to get a bar, you know, just to go back into it again. And it's something that never really leaves you, I think, as a bartender and stuff. So no matter what you're going to do, because I went on then to... Um, Jewers, the Global Ambassador, and then I had the drink cabinet, a drinks agency, and I just always wanted to do it. So when we had the, had the agency, we were in the east end of Glasgow, we were in an area called the Gallagate, um, next to the kind of infamous uh, Barrowland Ballroom, and we were, we, were, we were there for about three years, and this pub, um, it was called Emerald Isle, um, and it was a, a very unique pub. If anyone doesn't know that area, Gallagate, there's a, a very strong allegiance to the... Um, green white side of Glasgow uh, and this pub was called the Emerald Isle and it was on a steel um, the actual freehold to buy the whole thing and I looked at it and I thought no I can't I can't do that you know it's not ready the area but you know there's a, there's an equation I always believe like because again you look at Shoreditch, Hoxton, you look at any country and you look at these areas there's an equation and it's almost like a wee range of tick boxes you know and the Gallagate area where we had the agency just had it all, you know, it had every single element right to become an area, you know, a, a kind of established cool area. And I just saw this place and I just thought, um, stuff it, let's go for it. Um, and I've got a great story, if you've, we've got time, I could actually tell you the day that I went in to view it, um, the day I went in to view the place, I actually almost never made it out alive, to be honest with you, that's how rough this pub was when I brought it in. Um, they thought I was an undercover policeman uh, when I first went in to view it. And what I didn't realise was the actual time of the viewing was at 10 o'clock in the morning. And you would think no one's in the pub, right, at 10 o'clock in the morning, but my pub still has this just now as well. It's got a historic kind of, it's like a shipyard licence for the workers. So it's actually got on a Friday, Saturday and a Sunday, I think, but I can open the pub at 7 o'clock in the morning. Right. So I walked into this pub thinking I was just going to view it uh, and not realising the pub was absolutely full. Oh, there's one caveat. There's one caveat to open at seven o'clock in the morning, right? And this is on my licence. You've got to have a breakfast roll. So you've got <laughs> to have a roll and bacon and then to drink at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so I walked into this place at 10 o'clock and there was every hood in Glasgow uh, looking at me as I was trying to view this place. But the, the weird thing was it actually spurred me on. I grew up in quite a working class background. You know, it kind of spurred me on more to do something. And uh, yeah, the next day uh, I put the offer in and bought it, but I actually didn't open it for two years. Um, right. What happened was the um, the roof nearly came in. So there's a, I mean, I could do, we could actually do a whole section just on the gate, to be honest with you. The roof nearly came in, the building was falling apart, um, and it just kind of took a long, long time to get it that way. So I left um, the drink cabinet at the start of, where I we now, start last year, and just dedicated myself to rebuilding this pub because it's been a pub on the site for 200 years. Oh, wow. Uh, next year. Uh, so it's 199 years old, 200 years next year. And it's a fascinating history about that whole street, you know, around... And I've always been obsessed with pubs. I've worked in two bars and everything else, but I grew up in pubs. And one of my biggest motivations with the gate was to create a modern pub 
you know, and, and all the great things, because I feel like it's been lost a wee bit, the, the, the idea of a great Scottish pub. And I think that it's something that I just really wanted to kind of revive in a kind of modern take. And yeah, it's been it's been really good. I mean, obviously we've got a couple hundred whiskies, um, big focus in whiskey cocktails, big focus in, but it's, it's more than that. The gate, the gate is, we're fully dedicated to modern, like, not modern, sorry, but just great Scottish hospitality. That's all I ever talk to the guys about is just how you make people feel. Because you've been in great pubs, right? You know a great pub. It's got that feeling that you just can't write down. It's got nothing to do with the offering. It's got nothing to do with the lighting, nothing to do with the music. It's just got to do with this feeling. And that's what I'm trying. I've not got there yet, but we'll get there. Trying to replicate that feeling um, within a pub. And it's been great. The area's amazing. The locals welcomed me in. Um, once I realised there wasn't an undercover policeman, they were totally fine with me. And um, yeah, it's been it's been great ever since. I've absolutely loved it. And, and it's been really well received by locals and by the Glasgow kind of trade. They're probably still wanting you to open at seven o'clock in the morning. That's why they've been so welcome to you. <laughs> I know they've been great because obviously you've got the Barras Market across the road, so you've got this. That's, that's going to be a hundred years next year as well. Hundred years old, uh, the Barras Market, which is a, a kind of iconic uh, street market and indoor market in Glasgow. So we've, we've put a lot of effort into the local area, the local community, connecting all them up as well, and really trying to. Because um, it's not gentrification. That's another thing you can't see down the Gallagher. You can't see gentrification. You know, we're evolving um, what we already have down there. So that's the key. And um, if you're ever there or if anyone listens ever there, then please come down, not just to my place, but just to come down and see what we're doing down there. It's great. Yeah, so it's it's, it's interesting because I've not, I don't get down to Glasgow as much as I'd like to um, nowadays, and especially at the moment. But I was very fortunate to come in at the start of the year when we had the ambassadors get together. Um, I popped in for that. And I think, like you say, it was very clear that hospitality was at the core of it. And it wasn't, it, it was exactly what you say. It's not, it's not a bar. It's not a cocktail bar. It is a modern Scottish pub. It has all of those cornerstones, that sort of atmosphere where it's, all about people together rather than what's going on at the bar. It's about the experience of drinking with friends and things. So it's an incredible, incredible place. And I'm seeing already lots of people, um, I think you're very much preaching to the converted, but there's a lot of people planning popping in. And um, Gregor, who's one of them and he's been watching these uh, streams regularly has asked, can you explain, uh, can you expand on uh, curating and planning the drams when rethinking the back bar? What went into, um, developing that whiskey list so it was it was a funny one so there was a couple of leading things at the start one one was price and price actually went into the way we kind of lay out and i'll go into that but we wanted to make it accessible um and we wanted to make it so the way we, we so i'm trying to explain this way because my brain goes round in circles with it so we wanted to base the collection so that the guest we could take the guest on a journey right right so basically, we didn't just base it on just getting some great whiskey in and that's it. It was thought out in a way that, so if we chose one whiskey, right, we were going like that, where could we take them after that and or three drams after that, you know, on a kind of journey. So that's how we base a lot of our customer service at the gate is either within one evening, say you're coming in and you're having two or three, four drams, where's the journey we're going to take you? And maybe even if you're coming in, maybe and a repeat visit, how can we kind of do that? So that was one thing was to create a list that was affordable, um, you know, as in every single range affordable. So you still could get 
a, a, you know, a classic jam, but you could go up in, in price from it as well. And the other thing was then based on flavour. So that was the idea that we could tell a story and actually take people on a journey through the kind of guest interaction. Because I didn't hire geeks. I didn't want whiskey geeks working in the pub. I hired people that had a passion about whiskey and probably at the start of their journey in whiskey, because that's who we get into the gate a lot of the time. The proper whiskey guys go to the Bon or do they go to the pot still? We're getting, we seem to have cornered the market of possibly the new generation that are getting into whiskey, you know, and they're kind of nervous and they kind of want to be taken. So our guys are, um, yeah, very kind of adequate at being able to talk to them in layman's terms. We've actually got, even got a jar at the side of the pub, which is a, you know, it's not a swear jar, it's actually just a um, shitty chat jar, which is any chat of fermentation. Uh, phenols, anything like that. The bartenders have to put money into the jar if they mention any sort of kind of wanky whiskey chat. So anyway, <laughs> back back to the whiskey collection. <laughs> there was a so yeah, price, flavor. So just to tell a quick story, we, we set it up first of all in flavor for the back bar. So two hundred whiskeys, and we put it into a flavor profile, right? So if you're looking at the back bar, you had you had light and sweet, you had, you know floral, and then it kind of went right round to big and powerful and smoky. And it didn't work um, because the punters were getting in. We kind of, we have to start realising that actually they want us to talk to them. You know, it's Scotland, it's whiskey. They, they wanted the interaction. People just looking at a back bar. I argue that they just, unless they really know what they want, they'll just order that. But if they're wanting to see what they want, they want to talk about it. And it's recommendations all the time. So we moved away from the flavour profile and we put them back into uh, back into regions, which I don't believe regions is right, but what it, as in flavour profile, it doesn't work anymore, but it works as in communicating to guests about the region. Right. And then one of the most, the, one of the key points of what we did was that we put tags, so every bottle in the gate has tags around it with a little coloured dot on it, different coloured dots. And in the menu and on the side of the bar, there's a chart and that's the pricing of the whiskey. So we put them all into whiskey rather than, the, the price, so you look at it and it's got a green dot on it, you know it's four quid a dram. If you right. look at it and it's got a pink dot on it, it's 20 quid a dram. And that has increased our sales dramatically because what we found is one of the biggest things that puts people off whiskey was actually the price a lot of the time and that not as much, it was the not knowing what the price was, right. you know, for the people that really aren't into whiskey getting into whiskey so they didn't really want to ask if how much is that and they didn't want to see it but if you can clearly state what the prices were, People were more open to try different things, but yeah, just to answer the gentleman's um, question, it was it, it was really first of all based on flavour, back into regions, but really being able to do it in a way that we could, the bartenders could take the guest on a journey through different whiskies. That's that's really interesting because something you, you touched on a few things there that I wholly agree on. So I've always said that whiskey geeks can make incredible communicators in the right environment but in the wrong environment they're the they're not very good at introducing whiskey to newcomers because it can very often be a case of let me show you what i know rather than what do you need to know um so it's, it's really cool that you've come at it from that approach from the staffing side of things as well um and something else you touched on one of my biggest gripes right now and i it's something that I say quite a lot, so apologies to anyone that's hearing this again, is the regions and how much importance we place on them from a flavour point of view. Because like you, maybe at some point in time, they did 
have meaning. And you could make the argument that the biggest distilleries in the region still tick that box in terms of flavour, but distilleries by their nature nowadays are so much more experimental that even in one distillery's range, there's a broad spectrum of flavours, let alone the next distillery along the road and so on and so forth. So it's interesting, though, that that still plays such an important role in the conversation. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. And I, I still think there's a place for it and because, like, if we're, if we're going back to what you were saying at the start, that... I, I don't see that, you know, people like, oh, the regions are pointless and you can't have them. I'm kind of like, yeah, when you talk about flavour, I agree now they're pointless because um, you're right, within a portfolio of whiskies, there's no, there's not many now that have a house style that runs through the whole range, you know, so that argument's kind of gone. But as far as, like, where it comes from, just in a purely kind of um, geographical sense, it's very simple to explain to people where that's from, you yeah. know, like, and just the understanding Glasgow, um, and it's just an easier like our, our main the main three things we talk about whiskey, right? So you've got flavour, price, and stories, right? That's the three things we kind of stand at when we're communicating about whiskey at the gate. Um, and and people will probably kind of go, oh, price, that's a bit unsavoury, but it's it's the fact of we work in an industry where we have to sell things. So price, flavour, and stories. And what I always tell my guys is. The regions help you tell that story. A lot of the time, well, then you start going into the distillery story. And all I ask my guys to do is know, know the price, understand the flavour, and actually where that flavour can then go, like what other brands or what other whiskey can we then go to after that, and then give me a couple of stories that aren't related to yeast or shapes of pot still or in like Give me stories that are, are, are funny or interesting about that brand, and that's all I ask them to do, and then you can just expand after that. Yeah. And what you touched on as well was quite interesting that a lot of your customers tend to be at the start of the journey because I was going to touch on that, you know, uh, there are a couple of established whiskey bars in Glasgow that are very much home to the the, the whiskey drinkers, the, the enthusiasts that will go there and seek them out because of them being almost institutions in the city. But you're also in this incredible position where you're across the road from the barrel lands and I would imagine there's a lot of people nipping for a drink before a show or afterwards and you must get this very diverse group of people so how do you then I guess how do you take people who are maybe not even going to the gate for a whiskey how do you take them how do you even get them on that first step of that journey the way the pub's laid out is one of the things so it's probably two things it's the kind of layout and how we showcase the whiskies in the first place so we make it really easy for them to see what there is, but also it's going to come down to the team. The team at the gate are, as soon as they sniff out a kind of someone that looks at the back bar and is kind of dwelling on it and looking at it, they sniff out that opportunity to start to talk to them about the whiskey and what if they had one before. Uh, even if they don't like it, you know, we've got cocktails there, they can try it. We're not, we, we never kind of pushed ourselves as a full whiskey bar. That's my passion. It's my little bit within the bar. As I said to you, a great pub is made up of lots of different moving parts and whiskey for us is one of them. But one of our main objectives is to break down those barriers. And you're right, the gate, you've never been in a pub. In a, a, like I've never been in a pub at the gate with the cross-section of society we have in the gate. And that's one of the biggest things I want. And I've had, like I get quite emotional sometimes uh, in the pub seeing the cross-section of community doing there. You know, I remember there was one night last year I was in and there was it was three girls in the bar having half and halves. 
there was a couple of bar as traders just having a pint of tenants at the end of the bar. Then there was some guys and girls having cocktails over in the corner, and that's always been our objective to do that. Um, but yeah, one, one of the biggest things, just to go back to your question, to break it down, is just communication. It's been able to talk to people and not push it in people's faces um, and just talk to them in layman's terms, you know, like actually speak to them properly about whiskey. I think as soon as you kind of overcomplicate it, because it already is overcomplicated to the, if we're talking about that new generation that are just getting into whiskey, I mean, you remember it as well, Scott, we're not that old. Do you remember that? thought of going into whiskey and it was a whole it was a minefield you know it was really difficult to kind of pick away understand it and i think that's part of our job is to kind of dispel it you want ice in it you want water in it you want coke in it whatever you want doesn't really matter you do what you want that's kind of our ethos one yeah and i think touching on that that first sort of my first experiences of, of it as well and trying to learn a little bit more you're right in that one of the biggest barriers was the fear of having to ask how much it was, you know. So the way you've got that set up with the, the little colour-coded menu is absolutely ideal. I guess before we go on to talk about Whiskey Wonderland and how that's developed from the gate, tell us a little bit about what's happening now at the gate because I know you were you mentioned that you were at the gate today. I was actually down at the distillery today, which was a lovely, lovely thing. It's a, only the second time I've been there during this whole lockdown, but uh, you were telling me that you were at, at the gate and getting ready for the first sort of phase of opening up. So what's that looking like? Um, so there's a couple of, we'll know more um, when Nicola kind of announces the kind of measures, but we've been working really hard to think about what our guests are going to want. So we're kind of flipping it. We're not just thinking about what we're going to do. It's kind of going, right, what, is the, what are the needs of our guests going to be? And one of those main things is um, safety and comfort, you know, so we'll put a lot of thought into to that making just the spacing out the flow of people coming in and out but the biggest part of us is moving away from a for a two-month period is moving away to kind of bookings only so it's reservations and we've got something on every night uh, from we're doing turbo quizzes we're doing food takeovers every thursday friday saturday we've got loads of different local um, kitchens coming and doing pop-ups and then we're doing a brunch bingo on the sunday as well and really just try to make the place feel alive and what we're basically doing is selling these two-hour slots and just absolutely giving people the, the time of their life that we can give them within that two hours. Because what we need to be is a sanctuary. We need to realise that people are going to be very nervous, Scott, of coming out. So we want to try and take away all that nervousness, all that kind of feeling. We've invested in a decent uh, booking system for the website so people can just book on, come in and enjoy themselves when they're in there. So really... Our biggest thing is on top of all the health and safety kind of stuff, is the mental aspect, just making sure that every single one of our guests comes into the gate, even if it's for two hours, they have the time of their freaking life, they go out there, drink in their belly, some good food, and um, we've gave them a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of um, ease from things for a couple hours and just kind of had a good time. That's what we're going to kind of do from. That's great, because I think so many people are looking forward to going back to the pub, but um, it would be it'd be sorry to go back to the pub and it'd just be a couple of old guys at the end of the bar having a half and half, you know, it's great that you're going to be putting so much into making sure that people's first experience of a pub after lockdown is the reason that they love pubs. So I, I look forward to seeing how that goes for you. So, I mean, as far as, oh, sorry, Scott, I was just going to say, like, we, we've got a thing, we call it subliminal control when I think it, that's the magic dust subliminal control in a good pub is where you get into a place and you don't really know what it is, but you just instantly feel safe. 
and instantly feel taken care of and instantly feel that you're going to good time. So we're just going to ramp up that feeling, really. Good. That's fantastic. And so Whiskey Wonderland. Whiskey Wonderland has been one of my favourite things to engage with over lockdown. And I, I thought when I was watching it, it was very much uh, Instagram activity while lockdown was taking place. And watched a lot of the stuff on Hospital Live. The, the very first one that you did with Daryl about the the history of whiskey through a handful of cocktails, the Hoff and Hoff pairing, the Whiskey Room 101. It's all been incredible, incredible stuff. But then I started speaking to you and there's so, so, so much more to Whiskey Wonderland than what we've seen over the last few months. So tell us a little bit about how Whiskey Wonderland came about and, and actually what it is. Um, God, so when, uh, the first... So right, here's the here's the story, right? So Visit Scotland and um a couple of their bodies came to me and were kind of like they did so they did a bit of research, right? So we hear this. You you'll know this, most people won't realise this. They went into I think maybe say it was 25, 30 hotels and bars in Glasgow. And they did a kind of mystery drinker thing. <clears throat> and they went in and asked staff. Um, kidded on, they didn't know anything about single malt and they asked the staff, you know, I'm quite into my whiskey, what do you recommend? And I think 90% of the staff had no scooby about what to say about whiskey, had not an idea. So they just couldn't even communicate. They were like, I don't have a, I don't have a clue. There was maybe sometimes there was one guy in the whole place that could talk to them about whiskey. You know, this isn't, a, a, you know, the biggest city in the whole of Scotland. They, they couldn't um, have anyone that could comfortably talk about single malt. So Visit Scotland and these kind of bodies came to me and said, what would you do? And I was like, well, the first thing we have to do is change when we talk about whiskey. You know, we have to kind of think about it different ways. So Whiskey Wonderland kind of started through training programmes and we actually managed to get, I think, three or four of these training programmes done at the gate before lockdown started. So we got some budget together and we kind of worked out how we could do these training sessions. And basically there were three of our sessions, Scott, that were built around breaking down the stigma and around single malt. And also, I suppose the 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 kind of aim of them was how to sell whiskey. You know, so taking out all those words, taking out all the things, no production kind of methods, how do we talk about whiskey to our guests? And it's all through flavour. So basically, like, so the training session was kind of made up. You would come into the gate and we would have a quick chat and then I blindfolded them instantly which I know sounds really weird, getting blindfolded down the Gallagate, but it was all safe. <laughs> so we blindfolded them. And what we basically did was we gave them a kind of sensory test. So Because most people, you give someone a whiskey, right, that's never into whiskey, and most bartenders now aren't into single malt. You give them it and go stick your nose in that, they're going to go, oh, well, you know, they're not going to be able to do what we do. So I blindfolded them, put them through a sensory test, just with normal aromas. I gave them a taste test. And just what I did was... So the, the idea was I gave them, let's say they were smelling a mix of herbs. I, I didn't want them to say what the herbs were. I wanted them to tell me what it reminded them of or what it made them feel like. So these young kids were getting really kind of vocal about, oh, it reminds me of, you know, cut grass at my dad's and, you know, in, in a summer's day. And they were really describing stuff. So I was just kind of trying to open up their head to actually understand whiskey a little bit more deeply when they were smelling it and taste it. And then we just went through about two and a half hours of just, really kind of mock-up sessions to understand about what people want. And what the biggest thing was, was if someone knows about whiskey, they're going to order what they want. Don't worry about them. But this is how you can help people guide them to the whiskey they want. And it was all just done through flavour. 
Um, so that's how we kind of kicked it off. We did these three sessions. We had all the mostly kind of hotels and five-star establishments in Glasgow all came into the gate and we took them through this and it was it was great. Like I'm, I'm one of my biggest critics, but they, they went away absolutely pumped about whiskey, understanding what they could then, it's kind of like our ethos at the gate, they could understand. So someone was having a um, tomato and 12, they were able to then take them to somewhere else after that or take them to another age group. And they were starting to understand, even if you don't like whiskey, you can talk about it and you can sell it to someone. So that's how it kind of started at the start. Um, after that, it kind of, I, I started, then I got the bug because I was telling my brain earlier on, my brain started ticking and I've always been obsessed with this idea of being able to talk about whiskey in a different way and a different kind of platform to understand it. So then lockdown happened and I thought, right, let's start up an Instagram and let's just get that new generation of whiskey drinkers, ambassadors, um, bartenders, all these different people that love whiskey and let's just get them doing different topics and talking about things in a different way. And again, it was, I think I was talking earlier on, it was just something to keep my brain busy, you know, as well at the same time. So that, started becoming quite popular and people were really getting into it and yeah the, so basically now where we're at with whiskey wonderland which is quite exciting um we're actually looking at retail so the next step will be retail moving into shop and um, really ramping up the training sessions within it as well so yeah within the space of a, a kind of a couple of months it's kind of grown some arms and legs definitely and i mean there's a, a lot to, to pick into there and uh, yes. The point that Shay has made in the chat there is an interesting one that the, the fact that this training is coming from an independent base rather than from a brand, because obviously my role when I'm going in is kind of to, I kind of go in with the approach that there's already a level of Scotch knowledge and my job is to tell them where Tomatin fits in their wider knowledge of Scotch. But what you touched on is, to an extent, it's quite alarming how little um the hospitality industry in, in Glasgow and probably wider Scotland knows about whiskey. And what I guess my question on that is what do you think the reason for that is? Do you think that's a lack of training or and a lack of investment in staff from the hospitality industry? Or is it a problem on the front of the brands um and not communicating their story? Is there something inherently confusing about Scotch whiskey? I think it's about both. Scott, to be honest with you, I think that hospitality industries, <clears throat> the job of a bartender or even even a floor person as well, like you know, it's it's never been kind of kind of looked upon as an amazing job, and that's something that's getting better. But I think that you know the training by operators is pretty poor, <clears throat> and again, I think that's somewhere brands can pick up. And I think that something less that we've not accepted any brand money. I've not got any brands involved in it at all, just for that one reason that you said that it it needs to be independent. It needs to be in a way where they need to discover themselves. Like they they will eventually, after doing a whiskey wonderland session, that they will then get into whiskey and discover and go to brand talks and go to everything else. But at the first point, you just have to get them to trigger first. You need to get them to understand what whiskey is and understand it in a basic term, then look into it. But yeah, to, to go back to your point, I think it probably is the two things. I think that the operators, as in managerial level and above, there's not enough investment in training. And I think there's, I think the brands could actually get together and really help with that. You know, whether it's like, you know, the way that you would offer West, Westset a lot of the time to people when you were in different companies, I think there's something that the whiskey industry could do to really help with that. 
Um, and it doesn't need to be brand led if there's a bit of taking the kind of high ground with the brands and saying, right, there is a step one, like you were saying, they don't need to hear about the history of my distillery yet. They don't need to know all this stuff. There's actually a step one, which is to get them to feel passionate about the brand, about the category, and then we can start to introduce them to it. So I think that's probably one thing. And I think the second thing, you're right, it's an incredibly scary category, Scott, um, for people that are maybe at university doing a part-time job on the front line or anything else. So we really have to break it down for them to understand it in a simple terms, you know. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's something that I noticed myself because with my role, if I'm going and I'm hosting a tasting or something like that, it's because people are coming to learn about tomatoes. So they've already got the enthusiasm. The whiskey bugs bit them. But occasionally um, I'll force myself to go and take a tour of the distillery and not necessarily like the VIP tours that we're obliged to do as brand ambassadors, but to go in and in the middle of summer, get just a, a peak summer tour the base level tour and it's amazing when you're doing that how much of the basics that you realize you overlook in your patter you know and it's something that i always try and remind myself of is that there might be no matter what tasting you're going to there might be someone that has never heard the term malted barley before and i'm trying to talk to them about peated barley you know, so just being able to kind of reset your brain into going back to step one every so often. I think that's critical for the people in my position to be able to do that because we can so easily get wrapped up in the geekery because we're geeks ourselves that we forget that yeah. they're at step one. And I think we're in, we're also in a bubble, like, you know, we're in a bubble where we're surrounded by other people that know about whiskey, so you just take it for granted that people understand it. And if the category is going to grow even more, which it should do, because it's, you know, one of the most amazing categories in the world, if it's going to grow more in that new generation, then we have to break down some of those barriers that stick by, you know, and I think it's just the communication. It's just the way we talk about it sometimes as whiskey people. We, we will easily confuse people and they just won't, they just won't get into it. You know, and that's that's what I'm saying back to the gate. That's one of the biggest things for us is that language we use, the terms we use, how can we really get people to understand that, you know, this is everyone's welcome, you know, to this. It's not just for, you, you know, that guy that knows loads sitting in the corner. It's for everyone. Yeah. And, I mean, something that I really like about what you are doing is you're breaking down the barriers, but you're also appreciating that, appreciating that tradition's there for a reason. And I think your very first uh, hospital live session where you did that history of scotch through cocktails kind of ties that tradition and modern together. It was a perfect balance. And it, it's something that you mentioned when we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, and to paraphrase that, you know, you can't just go in and say, here's a highball. You have to have a highball. This is how you drink whiskey now. I mean, for a long time, there was very much the thought that you can't add anything to your whiskey. But listening to some people now, you would think that you're not able to drink it without soda water, you know. So for you, where is that balance? I think we, I think we kind of need to stop getting caught up in it's such a Scottish thing. It's probably just such a British thing as well, but it's like we need to just do one thing and I think it can be more than one thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong. Like, if you want to go and have it with soda and do a highball and bash on, if you want to, like, we've, 
it's just about the environment and that's what I'm saying about the communication. I think brands get caught up in it a lot as well with the like, we just have to be this one thing and that's what we focus on. And for me, there's nothing wrong with, do, it doesn't need to be your main focus. You're just kind of saying, oh, but you can have it like that if you want. I think, I, I don't I'd envy them, but I look at a lot of the bourbon guys and they're so relaxed about what you do with their bourbon when it gets across that bar top or it gets across in the shop. So, I mean, I remember Fred No from Jim Bean just being like, do whatever you want with it. It doesn't matter. You know, like, and I think it's just having that balance of, because we get a lot of whiskey drinkers in the gate that just will sit and have it neat. I'm talking about the young team, the new generation, they'll sit and have it neat and they love the idea of just having a, a neat dram and a half an IPA and they're sitting there having a good chat and they love that ritual of the whole thing of having it really neat, no water and ice. And that's brilliant. But as you said, you kind of just come in there and, you know, some young hipster running in and doing a fly kick on the glass saying, oh, you've got to add soda and you've got to do all this. You, you need to appreciate that people do love that aspect. So it's just, for me, it's about, there is no, you know, right or wrong way. And I think you're right. I think with that first session, Darren and I done, we're doing the history of, we're doing the history of whiskey, right? Which is like a kind of old thing, but you're you're putting in cocktails that would have been drank with that. So you're just showing both sides of the world, and there's nothing wrong with doing both. Uh, it's, that's an interesting point as well. That those were cocktails that would have been drank at that time. Cocktails are by no means a new thing to whiskey, but they seem to have this air of, oh, that's that's different. I I, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe you know a little bit more about why uh, cocktails now seems had an air of taboo about them. I think that's been broken down again, but for something that was so known throughout whiskey's history, why did it all of a sudden become the wrong way to do things? I don't know if I, if I was to get geeky and I can get quite geeky. There, there was a, I did a talk at this Tales of the Cocktail thing a couple of years ago and I went through kind of generations of drinking scotch. There's been a kind of perfect storm where during the 90s, obviously single malt especially, was becoming to get more and more popular and, and then through the millennium and it's became... It's, it's had an air of obviously the tradition but also the kind of luxury about it so there's been a bit of you can't mix this and that goes for a 10 year old or whatever it will be it's just you can't mix that and that's just definitely changed as you say but it's just something that's it's going to stay with us for quite a while that you shouldn't mix it it's going to be that way but I think also there was a, a for, this is for Barton there was a Barton the book called Jerry Thomas um, book um, and a lot of these classic drinks and if you go back even although when we talked about cocktails like the Athol Bros and the Bobby Burns, all the other categories have always had so many more classic drinks. So when this classic drinks um, resurgence came through with books like Jerry Thomas, all from the 1800s, the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was hardly any reference of scotch in it at all. You know, there was maybe out of a book of 50 cocktails, you might have one or two scotch cocktails. So when this classic, rediscovering the classic renaissance came through the bar in the world, Scotch kind of got left behind, behind a little bit on it. And, you know, rye whiskey and bourbon and, you know, all these kind of gin as well all started to kind of be brought into these things. And Scotch kind of got left a wee bit behind. But it didn't really bother us at the time because we were pumping out, you know, old whiskey and expensive whiskey. And that was the kind of reputation that kind of tagged onto whiskey. And I think you're right. You know, you look at especially some of the blended malts that are coming out and a lot of the way that the the blends as well have started to change their tune uh, and really get into this. I think it's it's definitely changing. You know? Yeah. And 
I, I, another thing that you mentioned that I thought was absolutely the perfect analogy was you always think about your uncles when you're talking about whiskey and just tell everyone about that because I think it's such a great way to approach whiskey as a category as a whole when you're talking to new people. Yes, yeah, so they've got either, I usually use my dad, so my dad's Jim Gamble or my father-in-law or my brother-in-law. So they're my three kind of people I've got in my head all the time. And it, it, what, what this basically does is keeps you out of your, our bubble, you know, the bubble that we're in, Scott, and a lot of people listening, which is our whiskey bubble. And they kind of, they kind of got into whiskey maybe five years ago, a single malt, only single malt, and they kind of get into that. And they're kind of supermarket buyers, they'll sometimes DVR, but a lot of the things that I kind of base a lot of my choices at through whiskey selection, through the gate choices is what would they do? Like what would my dad do or what would my uncle do? Um, in that situation and it actually really helps me think about how I then talk about it do you know what I mean so even at the 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 people that work at the gate the team there I even think about you know would my dad understand this would he understand what I'm saying about this whiskey would he enjoy this drink would he get all that so it's something that always runs through just to make sure I'm it's like a bullshit gauge right you know it's like a Scottish thing it's this thing you've got in your head you know you if your dad you, you think about your dad in the background they give you a scalp around the head if you're talking too much crap you know I absolutely it's it's a perfect way of doing it. I I always think, you know, I've been saying it I've been thinking about it more and more recently is that the people that I, I engage with, I'm very well aware that they are people that are in a very, very small um percentage of the overall whiskey drinking community, you know. Now that does not mean that they their opinions or their needs or their demands are in any way to be overlooked because it's the part of the whiskey market that I'm in. It's the part of the whiskey market that you're in. And actually probably everybody that's watching tonight is in that part of the whiskey market. And it's what makes it so interesting. But I think the reason that these two things tie together is that for Tomatin, as an example, to bottle a single cask or um, a really cool cask maturation, and for me to be able to come to you and answer your questions about fermentation lengths and things like that, we have to sell quite a lot of legacy in 12-year-old. And that's a small uh, snapshot into the industry as a whole. For us to be able to satisfy the demands of this small group of real whiskey lovers, there has to be an understanding of the overall consumer. And I think one of the problems for brands, and we touched on that a little bit earlier on, is that because you're in that bubble, it's so easy to overlook how important the £25 bottle of malt in Tesco's actually is to the industry. Without a doubt. And I think that, like like a lot of the people hopefully listening tonight, like, we need these people. That's the reason that, you know, single malt and Scotch whiskey is so admired because people fall in love with it and they are passionate about it other than any other category. They are passionate and love um, the brands. And you're right, they're like your influencers, you know, they're your Instagram influencers, all these people out there that are influencing what we do. And we need that. What you kind of need for them, though, is to not get annoyed if you're going to deviate a little bit into something else. You're still going to get your cool bottlings, you're still going to get this, but you know what? Let's talk to these other 90% of people. Let us just see if we can engage with them in a different level to get them into the category. And that's why I'm saying I don't see why a lot of the brands can't do both to a certain extent, you know, and it, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm a whiskey geek the same as yourself at heart. Like I, I sit there and still study my whiskey and still, you know, will collect and do whatever else. But 
as I've got older and a wee bit wiser, I, my main mission now with Whiskey Wonderland and the Gate is to engage with that new generation and, and see how they're going to, you know, take on the mantle and get into whiskey in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's something that you see other categories doing very well. I'm always, I always tell this story that I, I live in um, Allness, which for whiskey fans is where Dalmore and Tinnanich distilleries are. But I grew up in a small village about five miles away called Eventon. It's a tiny little village, has one pub, and it is very much the classic um, working class village. And, you know, half and half is the order of the day at the bar with over a game of darts or pool, you know. And I'll always remember being in there and two guys at the end of the bar must have been well into their 50s anyway. And they were boys that you would never not see with a pint of tenants. That was the, the order. But this one night, you know, they'd had their few pints of tenants and they were moving on and they had a gin and tonic. And I remember one of them yeah. saying, I remember one of them saying, you know why this one's good? It's because it's got seaweed in it. How do you know that? And, and and how do you know that that is important? And I think that is incredible that gin has ha been able to do that in a way that maybe whiskey hasn't because when we're trying to tell people why something tastes the way it does, we maybe get too geeky rather than going back to what you're doing with the gay and whiskey wonderland and saying, this is the flavor, you know, and focus on the flavor rather than why it's all in there. Yeah, do you know what's a great example with gin? Like we get, you know, like women coming in, and, and you're right. Like those two guys sitting there, pint of tenants, and they, they, they will, they will find out one thing, and that's why I'm saying to you about the. We talked about price, flavour, and stories. Like we've got amazing stories that they just have to demystify a little bit to the new generation to get them just to go. That's why I love this product, and Jen have done it really well. You know that every single gin out there. They're sitting around the boardroom table just going, what is our one USP? You know, they're all sitting around and they'll all, I've been in a million of these meetings, they'll bring up Hendrix on a bloody uh, laptop somewhere and they'll all look for their cucumber. So that's basically what they'll do. They all look for the cucumber. and But they're right, they need to look for that little thing that is going to set them out from the crowd. And and I, I think that in Scotch world, we kind of frown upon that a lot of the time. Within our bubble, we kind of go, oh, they're, you know, and, and we kind of do the same old thing about the oldest whiskey distillery. That that's not really sexy, Scott. If I'm honest with you, do you know what I mean? That's not making me want to drink your whiskey and the new generation by going you're the oldest distillery. Let's think about flavour. Let's think about different ways we can talk about the category. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Abs so I mean, this we're very much on the the Tomatin channel here, but this whole sessions that we've been doing has all been about bringing people into whiskey as a whole. So I'd be wrong if I didn't ask you what brands you think are doing it right at the moment. Um, from my experience, I'm trying to think on what level. I'm I'm a bit. So me personally, I can talk about the team at the gate as well because they're the they're the young kids. They kind of have good views, but I, I'm a big fan for kind of um, quite classic kind of styles of whiskey as well. I'm a big Aldronach fan, Ben Nevis. We we go through a, a lot of that kind of classic style. Um, I, I think that for me, I'm quite old school in the way that I love brands, whiskey brands that come in and have that human touch. You know, so it's all the wee things like being, me getting sent a little. 50 mil sample, 100 mil sample of stuff. I'm not really one for, you know, being taken on a trip somewhere and, and kind of grand gestures. It's usually the ones that are, 
that keep in touch and have that kind of Scottish hospitality part to it. And we're going back to that old school way where they're just kind of keep in touch and do it. When it comes to marketing and all that side of things, um, people might hate me. In fact, they will hate me for saying this, but I actually don't mind what Glenn Fiddick have done with the experimental range and all the things as well. Yeah, it's bold and it's brash, but my God, you know, if you're going to be disruptive and do it, I think that the experimental range was a, a really good activation. Um, maybe not everyone's cup of tea from our bubble, but I, I thought it was a really cool way of doing it. I'm quite excited about a lot of the independent bottlers that are starting up now as well. Um, we do really well with independent bottlings in the gate because we call that a weird and wonderful section. So um, I'm quite excited about seeing a lot of the independent bottlers come out. A lot of young people starting up companies and doing things as well. But yeah, without thinking as well, Tomatin does great. Tomatin sits with us, um, a couple of our guys, love the port finish. And again, it's something that becomes then part of their journey when they're taking them. Because, you know, they all know the big players. Tomatin's one that sits within that one where people will be like, oh, what's that? I want to try that. And they want to try something different. So it sits really well. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's the, the, the young team within the gate. Um, they love the independent bottlings. Um, again, they're not, they kind of shy away from the big, the big kind of brash kind of things that are going on and they kind of go for authenticity a lot of the time. So, a lot of them love their um, more traditional kind of style distilleries. It's, it's really interesting that you brought up Glenn Fiddick because um, earlier this year we employed a new distillery manager, Janice, who came from um, uh, William Grant's. She was working in the, the, the labs over there. And it was uh, I was chatting to her today, oddly enough, and we were talking about Glenn Fiddick and she was saying, you know, there is, we're both chatting about it and saying that there's something about the fact that it's the biggest that people like to uh, dismiss it very quickly and and have a cynical view on things like the experimental series. But when you dig into what the experimental series is and actually sit with a glass of it, it's incredible liquid and it's doing exactly what you're talking about, which is talking about flavour and bringing in people into whiskey. Something like firing cane is a great way of. Yeah the market leader saying we need to readdress the way that we introduce people to whiskey and they've done an incredible job with it. Totally. I mean, there's a, there's a reason they're the biggest, Scott, right? Aye. You know, that's the, that's a, <laughs> yeah. so no, no, we, we, we enjoy that. I, I, just, I, like, I like the innovation, like a lot of people cringe at a lot of the stuff that's out there, but innovation doesn't, all, a lot of people don't always get it right with innovation, but you know, I'm just loving that you know, you guys do a lot of cast finishes and stuff like that. They're really popular within the gate. And I find that they, they, even with talking about whiskey, the finishes are a really nice way to talk about whiskey and flavour because you know what you're kind of going to get in these finishes. So they're really popular as well within the gate. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about... I think that's the, the key when you, when you talk about innovation. As much as we are talking about established products and established brands, the people that are making them are inquisitive and want to learn a little bit more and try new things. And we're talking about experimentation and various things we can do on a production side. And it's interesting that and it might change over time, but it certainly seems to be the case that things like ingredients are much more easy to communicate uh, your experiments with than processes. So say, for example, using different barley or different casks or something like that is much easier to communicate why it's got an impact on flavour than 
an extra long fermentation or a, a rapid distillation and things like that. Um, and I guess, I guess that's been the case for a while, but do you think that will change in time? Yeah, I think so, but I think as long as, like you were saying, I think as long as you relate it back to flavour, then it doesn't really matter. You know, just to go back to Jim Gale, Jim Gemmel theory, like, I think as long as I put a dram in front of my head and tell him, you're going to like that, it's sweet and it's got a wee bit of smoke to it, he's going to be like, all right, okay, I'll drink it, and that'll be him onto it. I think as long as you relate everything back to flavour, so if you're doing a 90-hour fermentation or you've added Chardonnay yeast, that's fine. But relate it back to what you're going to get in the bottle and relate it back to how the bartender can then talk about it. Do you know what I mean? So that they're they're able to relate it back to flavour. Because we have one of the most diverse, you know, categories when it comes to flavour within all spirits. You know, no one comes near to us with the vastness of what you can get. Even we've got 200 odd whiskies, like it's incredible, you know, and that I think that's also what puts people off. But as long as you can simply talk to people about what they're going to get. It's like having a cocktail. As long as you can explain to them, oh, what's this cocktail? And you say, oh, it's going to taste like Parma Violets. Bum, I know what I'm going to get. You know, so as long as you're, you're explaining what they're going to get, you can get them on board with what you're doing instead of really going into process. It's, the processes are fine and we love all that stuff, but everything needs to relate back to flavour. Yeah, and the experience of drinking it. So, We've gone through this horrible lockdown period. Has that changed um, your approach to Whiskey Wonderland and what you want to do with it compared to your original plan? Um, yeah, the, I mean, the retail side of it, the, the kind of website and the e-commerce side of things and the retails went a lot quicker. Um, right. Sadly, because there's a lot more retail units coming up, so we're going to get a good opportunity to pick up a really good retail unit. And I know a lot of people think I'm daft, but I think there's a great opportunity out there to have a, a forward thinking, you know, whiskey website and retail offering um, that is different to anything anyone's ever seen before. And that's quite a big, bold statement. But I believe that with the ethos and the kind of, the kind of pillars I kind of think that are surrounding Whiskey Wonderland, we've got a good um, opportunity here to create something that is just a... Basically, what I want it to be is like a kind of platform, you know, like a movement and just let people be able to come into it, whoever wants to come into whiskey. So, no, I'm, I'm really excited. I think it's it's a good time to kind of do it. And I think that through all this, that what we've been through, the Scottish attitude is always to bash on, Scott, right? And we just need to bash on. And we're going to do that regardless, no matter what we do. So we've just got to keep going and what will happen will happen, you know? Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's good. I think the... The fact that um, there's been so much more uptake in tools like Zoom and Teams and things like that gives the opportunities to do to quickly build beyond just training bartenders in Glasgow and do um, things further afield as well. So um, for anyone that's tuning in, Whiskey Wonderland and, and The Gate social media very much lies on Instagram at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we're both on Instagram and uh, we've got Facebook channels. We have no Twitter in that, but Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, 
So I'd encourage everyone to go over and check out Whiskey Wonderland. I've loved everything that they've been doing. And if you want to watch some of the streams that they've held themselves, and Andy's become a pro on this StreamYard tool as well, um, go over to Hospital Live on Facebook and search back through their catalogue of videos and pick up on some of the, the videos that I've been talking about. But Andy, it's five past 10 on Tuesday night. So thank you very, very much for taking the time to chat to me on our first Tuesday night session. Uh, listen, thank you so much to um, Scott, to Matt, and thanks so much to all the team as well. It's a great thing you're doing, and um, to everyone kind of listening as well, thanks so much, and we'll hopefully see you down the gate soon for a wee half and half. Absolutely. Can't wait. Cheers, Andy. Cheers, Andy.